Welcome to the Take 92 Podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I am your host. And today we have iconic punk rock collage artist, propaganda saboteur, my friend Winston Smith. He's calling in from San Francisco. We're going to talk about his legendary work with Dead Kennedys, Green Day, George Carlin, and recent collaborations with my band, Dead Fucking Serious. Here's Winston Smith. Hey, man. How's it going? Oh, pretty good, man. Just taking it slow today. How about you? Oh, it's hot here in San Francisco. I walked over to the tomb, and it's actually cool, you know, because we're underground. Yeah. Literally and and, uh, figuratively. (laughs) But the underground part makes it just a couple of notches cooler than pre-apocalyptic world. Oh, that's good. Yeah, our, our only form of air conditioning dig a hole and sit in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, well, uh, how'd the rest of the tour go? You know, it was good. I mean, you know, the small shows would be playing for 20 people or something, but, yeah. uh, you know, every, every place we played, people were really into it and wanted to support and take home the album. And, you know, it, it felt good. Oh, that's that, great. Yeah. yeah. New, new stuff's connecting with people, you know? Well, some of the, some of the best shows I've seen are, are small, intimate crowds. And I think first time I saw Guar. There was more people, definitely more people on stage than there were in the audience. <laughs> yeah. But they put out, you know, completely 100% for it. didn't matter to them whether it's a you know, stadium or a, a garage sale. It was the same. They built it out, the, uh, the classics. Yeah, and I, I learned that in high school. I remember we were just playing a basement show downtown. The touring bands went on earlier, so we could, you know, we played last so they would get a better crowd. But then uh, someone like ran downstairs as we were setting up and was like, hey, so-and-so's playing down the street. And everyone just left. And uh, <laughs> and I remember the only person that stayed, I was his ride home. And so, <laughs> so we played the whole set to this one dude. And the whole time I was just thinking like, you know what, I'm still going to go just as hard. And, and, and yeah. I've, I've kind of tried to keep that in all these years of touring of just uh, no matter who's there, you still give it the heart and you never know how people will react to that. Sure. It could be, you know, uh, his friend walks in halfway through and he's a talent scout for uh, Rye Television in Italy or (laughs) just the right act for um, opening for the uh, Strolling Bones. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, we played in Pasadena on the same night as the Rolling Stones on this tour. Uh Oh, and and so we're we're pulling in, and the traffic was just seventh level of hell. I mean, it was just yeah. t- terrible. Dante had traffic. Yeah, man, it was uh, it was not my friend, but we still had a pretty good turnout. When we did a show in London on the same day as the uh, the royal wedding, and then <laughs> there was also a giant football match uh, in some stadium cross, and then the Stones are playing at some giant old theater and fortunately none of those people are my um uh, audience so uh, yeah. i didn't really we still had a full house where we were but we just figured you know traffic would be shut down and a lot of people wouldn't show up at all but people came out it was even going to rain but they didn't care so yeah it's when you know what, uh, who your real friends are <laughs> yeah they show up in the, in the rain and 
Well, and mostly it's just, you know, for me, like I live in a college town and if, you know, if there's a big game, I'm not going to that end of town for any reason, you know, like (laughs) that's, that's more what I think of like when we were parking and trying to grab something to eat before that Pasadena show. And, you know, I'm looking in, in the window at a, at a menu at a restaurant and this guy walks up and he's like, they don't serve stones fans here. <laughs> I'm like, get the fuck out of my face, please. I'm just trying to eat lunch. Like <laughs> you, <laughs> you are the reason I was trying to avoid this, you know, like yeah. not so much that we're going to lose to their demographic, but just like you have to put up with all the extra assholes. Oh, that's it. That's really it. Yeah. And believe me, they come out of the woodwork. Yeah. Is your podcast, is it a radio thing or is it? It's online. I drop it every two weeks. Um, oh, okay. I kind of do it just whenever I have time. I'll bust out a few episodes and then I'll go quiet for a little while while I work on music. But um, I, I really enjoy it. And lately, yeah. lately I've been doing them by phone. I used to only do them in person and, uh, you know, it, it became harder and harder to to fill my schedule with guests when, um, you know, there's only so many people who travel through Eugene. So it's, it's really, yeah. it's really opened things up when I, I decided to just start calling folks that I know all over the place. Sure. On the telephone, if it comes across, are we being re- recorded? Is it? Yeah. Go? Yeah, we're okay. on. So, uh, I guess to, uh, to get started, I, I mean, the, the first credit of yours I'm aware of is uh, on Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables as the, the designer of the, the DK logo. What was your uh, the beginning of your relationship with Biafra? I used to volunteer for Rock Against Racism. I think they started off in Great Britain and then there were chapters in New York and San Francisco. At the time, we did, um, we organized shows for, you know, little bands that otherwise would never get a show anywhere and raise money for different, different causes, but mainly like the anti-racist stuff. And it was, this would have been in 1970, 77, 78, and 79, I guess, when I was involved with them. And, uh, we used to make, uh, zines, you know, small magazines for RAR. And I do all my layout stuff and collage. Uh, you know, we take it to the Rexall and, and photocopy it in the back of the shop or the library, public library would have like nickel photocopiers. Usually real crappy paper, you know, paper that looked like, you know, recycled flies wings. Not, <laughs> not very durable. Yeah. But, uh, I think we just did them as giveaways. It was very much a labor of love. And my friend, um, Melody kept saying, oh, you should you should meet this friend of mine. He's got a band that, that just put out a record, and, and he thinks just like you, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I think weeks went by, and finally she brought this 45 back and said, check it out. And it was California Ubralis. Mm. And I thought, well, this sounds better than most of the stuff that's already out there. You know, it has some uh, meaning to it. <laughs> I wrote Biafra a postcard because we didn't have, nobody <laughs> I knew had telephones. Yeah, at that time, I said if you want more like this, you know, write back at this address. And then he and I started to correspond. And at one point, he says, "Well, come to come to the Mabue after our next show next week." And naturally, I got there too late to see the band. <laughs> I'm chronically procrastinating. So I um, finally, we all jump into uh, uh, my hunk of junk and go out looking for food at 2.30 or 3 in the morning. 
in San Francisco was really hard to find. We had to go drive all over the city to get anything that was still open. And Biafra finally was going through a, a portfolio I had of different collages and stuff. He came across um, this thing I made a couple of years before, a crucifix built out of dollar bills. Yeah. So it's a, a cross of dollars. I call it idol. As in, you know, that, that's what people really worship is, is this cross of money, cross of cash. Yeah. And he didn't tell me at the time, I didn't learn about this until like 20 years later, that he um, didn't really have a record in mind. He went out and had to write some music to correspond to the, the picture because <laughs> yeah, he wanted that on the cover of the record so much. And we wound up working together on this one big, uh, it was a double-sided poster that was in the first record, Fresh Fruit. Yeah. It's pretty cluttered. I look at it now and go, oh, what a mess, you know, because we just had, we jammed so much into it because we never, we never thought we'd get another chance. <laughs> so we figured, well, might as well add everything we can uh, since this is probably the only time it's going to happen. Yeah. And then, um, Bye bye. We just began work on, on other projects together, and uh, as Biafra puts it, considered each other partners in crime for uh, was it nearly forty years? Forty years? Wow. Yeah. God, no wonder we're old. <laughs> uh, forty years. So um, that's it in a nutshell. And we've done several projects that are mix of art and performance and. Oh, we even did some, uh, when they were trendy for a while, vinyl discs uh, that I had originally made as clocks, and they came out as uh, as vinyls. I hadn't didn't know that was a thing. I think I've done about 75, 75 or 80 record covers. Not all That's crazy. Covers. Some of them are 45s, and some of them were, you know, cassette tapes. Uh, a lot of them are, especially these days, it's CD covers. But but 12-inch um, album covers are what I like doing best because, you know, then you have this big palette, you know, a big art thing that you can look at, you know. Yeah, and e even as a, a kid who grew up in the 90s and buying CDs, I used to just love digging through those Kennedy's booklets because there was so much yeah, going yeah, on, yeah. you know? I yeah, mean, those are the zines that we'd, we'd put in. And uh, John Yates was uh, instrumental in helping with some of those. He was a layout guy from England who uh, still lives in the Bay Area. Uh, I think the opera described his take on things as being kind of the Madison Avenue full-scale advertising propaganda. Yeah. And we were limited with what we could do because of the you know, tight budget, so it wasn't like we could make... Um, I was pretty bummed by the 28-page booklet that was included in the plastic surgery disasters. Got printed really, really roughly, really badly. And um, it was printed much better in, in England, but then they cut off about a uh, half an inch all the way around. Oh. Uh, yeah, it's like, great, great, good print job, but cut in half and the other one they didn't cut in half at all but really crappy print job so bad that I, even I would struggle to look at what I'd made and I, I can't tell what it is oh man because it doesn't look anything like the original which over the years I sold off bit by bit kind of wish I had hung on to them now yeah yeah that that record in particular because uh plastic surgery disasters yeah plastic surgery disasters when when I bought it it was like 
because um, it was the CD, it was bundled with In God We Trust Incorporated. And so, oh, right. and so that was how I heard um, both of those records. And uh, man, that, that was what really got me into that band. And uh, I, was, I was just immediately struck by the artwork and the like super just sarcastic lyrics and how the, you know, the booklet just all, it, it was all just one big statement, you know? I thought yeah. it, it all worked on so many levels. You were trying to uh, be a f- full entertainment uh, outlet. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I was in a, a photojournalism class like a year or so after that, and I, this, this just struck me the other day um, when I was talking to you about, like, I, after seeing your art studio, I even, you know, tried working on that collage piece. And I was thinking back to in high school once I had, had just started getting into uh, the music and, and, um, and seeing your work for the first time. I was in a photojournalism class and I took, my parents had this American flag that they would hang up on like the 4th of July or whatever. And I took it and I laid it out. I moved all the furniture in the living room and I laid it out on the ground and I threw, oh. a, I threw a bunch of dollar bills on it, just like crumpled up dollar bills, and I had a flags like the, the army sends out, like to put a, on a coffin. Yeah, and I had yeah, a. I've got one of those. They're big. They're huge flags. They're like seven feet long or eight feet long. And I had a, a a pocket Bible that some guy had been giving out in front of our middle school that I just had yeah. in a drawer, and and then uh, I had these little like um, this is all that I had, but where they were like alphabet crackers or cookies or something that my little brother had. And so, oh, perfect. so I, yeah. I took all these, but they're like, they're like larger than alphabet soup. They're like maybe two, yeah. two inch cookies or something. And, yeah, with the, and so, the yeah. And so I took out, uh, the flag and the cash and the Bible. And I wrote like in greed, we trust on the flag <laughs> in these cookies. And I, something I turned in this photo, <laughs> I turned in this photo in school in my freshman year of high school as my, uh, uh, get <laughs> journalism class. No, actually, she she had me. Uh, the the teacher said uh, that I should join the the school newspaper, and I did. I became the commentary oh. editor after that. At my at my school, they would have like that would have been the first page of my FBI dossier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I That's lucked out. That I, they they grooved on it and didn't flip out. Yeah, I lucked but, out uh, in having a, a a good teacher. Yeah, if you're asking for trouble, that <laughs> sounds like. Of course, in my in my case, the couple times that I got suspended from school, I didn't mind at all because since I never did my homework, I never did any of the lessons. I didn't care. It wasn't like, oh, I I have to catch up now. <laughs> no, no, I can go home and watch television. <laughs> Much better for my brain case. <laughs> um, yeah, they, I think um, they would only expel me for to give themselves a break. Yeah, all through my academic career i had a 0.00 grade average so it wasn't like there's was anything i could do to like let them down or <laughs> they didn't have any great expectations on me <laughs> yeah to bring it back to uh your 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 artwork you know you're most known for the collage style but when you did uh the last i think it was the last kennedy's album um that was actually a hand-drawn piece in Bedtime for Democracy. Yeah. Um, yeah. How much of that have you done over the years? You know, precious little. That was two feet by four feet. Whoa. It was a really big, big piece. Um, a friend of mine owns the original. Um, the, the idea for each little 
group of people doing things and that mainly was, uh, I'd say 90% Biafra's idea. He'd say, well, we need to have a, a spaceship that blew up. You know, that's going to be, should be sticking out of Lady Liberty's eye, like in that old silent movie with the, the guys go to the moon. And, um, and then you put, uh, Jake Garn, the septuagenarian senator who insisted on going, uh, in a space shuttle, um, and the teacher in space lady, and and I even drew Darth Vader, <laughs> all sticking their heads out the window. And each one, pardon me, each one had a, a different kind of um, illustration for symbolizing one of the tracks on the on the record. Oh, um, and then I added a lot of my own personal um, things, and my I can draw, but I can't. You know, I can't draw like Raphael, but I can draw kind of like figuratively. So these are more really like cartoons. And I'm thinking of trying to maybe redraw a new version of that with uh, Brother Trump and his ah. uh, Confederates. His, of course, they switch around so quickly now it's going to be hard to keep up with who's in, who's out. Um, every, every week they have to reissue a new a new lineup of criminal suspects. So do you ever draw but, like that just to map out what you're going to do with a collage before you do it? No, never, ever. Uh, it's, there's, it's really impossible for collages. There is no preliminary stage because it would be really impossible to go and find the imagery that has already be existing in order to cut it out and then see how it looks next to some other imagery. Yeah. It's all things that by themselves are innocent. They have no um, connotations, right, left, up, down, anything. They're just, you know, somebody holding a cup of coffee, you know, somebody changing a tire, a dog sitting on a, a table. <laughs> and But if you, you know, mix them up and suddenly the guy changing a tire is not holding a tire, he's holding an art bark or something more sinister than prompts the mind to get suspicious and, yeah. and make their allegories. They're like allegorical stories, artwork in the past. You know, in the 13th and 14th century, there'd be these allegories of truth and beauty and honor and courage and other, you know, noble thoughts. And they'd represent with, you know, different characters like from mythology. You know, strength is prevailing over over weakness and, and right is prevailing over wrong and so on and so forth. And so in my allegories, you know, anything can happen. So I'll have these symbolic images, but they're not really doing what you would traditionally think they'd be doing. Yeah, I think there's always like a great contrast between the traditional wholesome American things next to yeah. next to kind of America's more as you put it, sinister side. You know, yeah, like, and you know, bombs, and you know, here's a happy housewife, which instead of holding a casserole in her hand, she's smiling, holding, you know, napalm or or something, you know, destructive and and, and awful. Yeah, or I think but, of the the insomniac artwork with the uh, you know the machine gun at the breakfast table, and yeah, the the insomniac one is really a very strange that. That might pass for about the strangest 
collage I've ever made. <laughs> the Green Day Boys got a big surprise. And uh, uh, over the years, I've thought of other ways to make it even worse. But uh, maybe I'll save that for the, the 25th anniversary is coming up. So oh, yeah. next year, we'll, uh, I'll do something to commemorate the quarter century that it's been terrorizing people. That's awesome. Yeah, that was actually the first uh, punk CD that I ever bought. Man. Oh, great. When you when you unfold that whole cover, it's it's uh, yeah. <laughs> it's. I mean, did you make that prior to them recording? Did they choose that, or was that something you made for them? No, it's something I made kind of you know on commission. Um, they went through a bunch of uh, my stuff, came over to my place, and just hung around and looked at a bunch of of pictures, odds and ends, just to get a feel for my style. And, and finally, we were out having a pizza someplace, and and we landed on a couple of things and uh, said well let's build it from like this and just let it spin off and um, I kept thinking God if we shrink this down to a CD all the stuff they wanted will be invisible no one will see it it'll be so tiny Yeah. and so I kept on thinking there's got to be a way to make a larger poster that will be folded up that then can slide into the the jewel box and I'm terrible at arithmetic and measuring and you know mathematics and yeah. but I finally figured out a way to do it but then of course I'd see them later on at people's houses and they'd be unfolded and folded and unfolded again yeah. and pinned up on the wall and, and they all had little holes in the middle of them you know because it's like a traffic uh, like a you know a road map that gets folded and refolded yep. until every time I unfold the uh, intersection of the four corners you put your thumb through it and so it really was encouraging self-destruction but the original title of that when I showed him the original when I got it done uh, after like 38 hours of work God. straight oh yeah you told me you were on like a crazy deadline for that weren't you uh, oh yeah yeah and, and I thought I had more time and they said no no we, we need it like like tomorrow and uh, you know day after tomorrow and so I was up for like three days and showed it to them and Bill says how, how long did it take you to do this and, well you know a couple of weeks of cutting everything out and getting it and then last 36 hours I guess to, said you haven't been asleep for 36 hours <laughs> <laughs> and I said no no for, for me it's easy I'm an insomniac and up till then we were going to call the record um Tightwad Hill was yeah. the working title. I think that's one of the names of the songs or tracks. Yeah. But then I titled my own piece. I titled it "God Told Me to Skin You Alive," and I thought that was pretty hairy. And they figured, well, we're going to give it another name. But <laughs> a friend of mine ran into Bill's wife one time at the park, and he had said some something to the effect that he he, he kind of felt like he missed the boat when he didn't use my title for it because it would have been funny, you know, Yeah. be in, in Kmart, you know, and people saying, that, attention, Kmart shoppers, God told me to skin you alive is on sale today <laughs> in, in aisle 14. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, th I think the PMRC was alive and well at that point. I don't think it would have gone over so well in, in the big box stores. Oh, yeah. that's uh, Yeah, I wonder if they're still around. I don't know. I de well, probably not at this point. There was a woman before that, a woman named Serena Dank, and she was uh, completely mad, 
just bonkers. And she insisted that, you know, it was kind of in the heyday of the uh, Jerry Falwell era yeah. of uh, TV preachers. And so she was, you know, trying to warn people that, you know, punk rock was going to, you know, rot your children's heads and bad moral influence. And, and the Serena Dank uh, movement was fortunately limited to, I think, mainly back east, I guess. But um, uh, God knows where she is now. Uh, uh, we hesitate to, spe- to speculate on... on uh, uh, she's probably working for Fox News, you know, <laughs> program director. Got a big promotion, yeah. Yeah, really, who the big bucks are. Were you at all under the crosshairs when, like, Jello was, you know, raided by the FBI and had all this shit going on for like peddling obscenity, and you know he was on fucking Oprah for God's sake. I mean, were were you in, involved in any of that just uh, peripherally? <laughs> no, safe. I was safely living in the woods in a cabin with more than a hundred miles away, up in the woods, out in the hills, no electricity, no running water, no telephone, no means of communication. And, and didn't even know it happened till it was kind of all open and, and done with. <laughs> um, I think I'd, I'd, I'd hitchhike into San Francisco once every, you know, four, three or four or five weeks, and then uh, hang out for a week or so and get stuff done. But by the time I went back and and Kaffer was saying, "This is horrible," cops came and some woman in L.A. said. You know, her kid bought one of the records and didn't like the picture. And it wasn't my picture. It was, it was Giger, H.R. Giger's picture. Yeah. I tried to warn him. He first said he wanted to have it on the outside. I said, no, 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 no. No, put it on the inside. Put it like a, like on the inside, like a gatefold. And, and otherwise, it's, you know, no one's going to buy it. You know, yeah. no, stores won't carry it. And uh, he did actually think, you know, maybe making a separate po- poster we figured that would be good enough, that's all. And um, this lady, she just figured, well, all I have to do is complain, and then other people have to shut up. You know, people were trying to explain to her, no, lady, there's this thing called the First Amendment. <laughs> we all get the chance to say whatever we want to say. You can't just complain about someone saying something you don't like, and they have to stop saying it now. Yeah. And art is you know, part, of, you know, part of that self-expression, poetry, music or whatever and that went on for like a year and a half or two years i think it really was destructive for the band because it just you know it it soaked up every last minute of their time energy and and uh, stress the irony is years later the son of um guarino i think was his name who was a prosecuting attorney trying to nail biafra on his uh uh, obscenity charges. You know, he he was trying to make a name for himself just so he could run for governors. I don't know what you know. He thought you know these politicians, and they all have plans and ulterior motives. But his son apparently was a big Dead K fan, and, and reported that his dad said, "Yeah, I guess I'm. You know, maybe I was going over the top in those days. I, you know, now that I, I look at the record and listen to it, it doesn't shock me nearly as much as it." as it didn't at that time but you know he he was shockable because he wanted to be because it would be good for his career yeah and um and yeah it you know but it was it 
it was also a good lesson to a lot of people that, yeah, your freedom of speech, your freedom of, of communication is something that if you don't fight for it, they'll whittle it away until you, you know, there's nothing left. That provides me with another great segue with one of the things I've really wanted to talk to you more about. Another person who, who went all the way to the Supreme Court in fighting obscenity with his art, and that is George Carlin. Carlin, yeah, George. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you did one of my favorite of his albums, if not my favorite of his albums, Complaints and Grievances. And oh, yeah. I hold him as my number one influence over any musician. I just, I love the way that guy thinks and, and being yeah. in, introduced to his work, you know, when I was probably 12 or 13, it was just the right, yeah. the right age to be. Right, because you, you begin to understand sarcasm and, and parody and, and just asking these kinds of questions about the way things are. And those first two specials he did in the early 90s, you know, where he's talking about language and euphemism and censorship, and he's talking about the Gulf War and who profits and all these things. I mean, those were huge ideas for a young person. And, and, and so, yeah. I, actually, I just before this interview, I put on I Kind of Like It When a Lot of People Die uh, to listen to that one more time. That was the original name of the record. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, um, well, and I'm sure you're aware of this, but uh, you know, a couple years ago, they finally put out his his bootleg copy of of the original show. Oh no, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, I, I was on tour a couple years ago. Um, oh, that's great. And uh, they had a a recording of him from uh, September 9th and September 10th, 2001. So for anyone who hasn't heard the story, yeah, he he was rehearsing for his HBO special doing yeah. doing live dates and his show was going to be called I kind of like it when a lot of mm -hmm. people die. And then yeah. so these recordings are from the day before and 2 days before 9/11 and then when he had to do the actual special uh which was yeah. in November, I believe, he had to obviously re rework it and change things and so there's elements of the original show and then there's his big closing piece that was actually used on the next one life is worth losing um, but it's it's crazy to hear all that stuff in its original yeah, he sent form. Me a tape which i still have someplace i should have put that away it was a you know like a cassette tape that he recorded off of a show and then dropped the mail from because we had a long conversation uh on the telephone about what he wanted to have in the picture yeah and um um and and a couple weeks before that, I'd been contacted by Atlantic Records, which I think was his record company. And, and I, I hadn't seen George Carlin since I was a teenager. I, I'd left the country for years, and I, I hadn't seen him on television since the mid-1960s, late 60s. And so I didn't, was totally unaware of his newer work that oh. was completely, you know, counterculture stuff. Yeah. And I, but I always liked him before. And um, so I, I didn't know, you know, about his characters uh, as much as, uh, I guess, everyone else. And I, I had to apologize to him. He said, no, no, don't worry. That's even better because, you know, you don't have any preconceived ideas. And I said, well, I keep asking everybody about the title in case I come across an image that could illustrate, you know, whatever it is. And they all like back off and all go, oh, yeah, the title's a little problem. Uh, <laughs> you, you'll have to just ask George about that. He'll call you next week and then you guys can discuss it. So was this pre or post 9-11 that you, this conversation's oh, it was, happening? It was before the attacks, okay, yeah. Okay, okay. And 
And so I was uh, coming back from a show I did in Detroit, and we stopped in Chicago. I used to illustrate, like, double-page illustrations for Playboy magazine, and so we were seeing these guys. And talking to Carlin that day, I finally cornered him. Okay, so, yeah, 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 I understand that. I, I get he's explaining all the, the themes and like I said, that's great I've, I've got all kinds of stuff I've got volcanoes I've got people with their feet inside of bear traps I've got you know automobile wrecks um, you know false fire alarms you name it but what's the title of the record and he finally says look we're going to call it I kind of like it when a lot of people die and then he spelled it out really quick he said lot of kind of K-I-N-D-A lot of L-O-T-T-A yeah and I said, oh, that's great, great title. That's, yeah, yeah, he came to the right place. I've got all this, like, catastrophes. <laughs> and, and we get back. I think we got back to San Francisco a day or two days later. My girlfriend at the time was, like, she was in tears. And I thought, what happened? You, you hurt yourself. Are you okay? Because she was just, like, weeping uncontrollably. And I thought, did you get bad news? Is your mom okay? What's going you know, it's all, oh, Larry just called and said there's been this horrible accident in New York. You know, to turn on the television, we had this crappy TV that only was used for showing videotapes. But it finally got one channel in between the static and, you know, just sat there with our mouths open for the next 24 hours watching this horrible crap unfold. And... While we're looking at this, the, the, the telephone rings in the middle of the day, it's like two o'clock in the afternoon, and I pick it up and it's Carlin. And George is saying, Oh, you know that, uh, you know that title we were discussing about <laughs> that record cover? Um, I says, Yeah. And he, he says, Oh, I think, I think I'm going to think of another title. I said, Well, under the circumstances, that probably would be a good idea. And he says, yeah, the, the record company, I ain't got, I ain't got, I got any balls. <laughs> <laughs> they got no balls. <laughs> so, well, I can't blame them. <laughs> uh, but I'm sure you can come up with something equally as uh, sinister. And, and it, I think complaints and grievances is mainly a, it's a legal term, you know, when, you know, here's another thing that pisses me off about those people who cut me off in traffic. And yeah. Here's another guy who should be hanged by his heels and, you know, bled and, slowly till his life seeps out of him. We discussed it a couple more times, but that definitely was out. I, I didn't know that they had done a bootleg thing of it. That's really cool. Yeah. Like this, is it a, a, like a vinyl record or a CD? I'm not sure if they did multiple formats or not. I got it on CD, but uh, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much a, a complete... Carlin collector and and yeah. I, having heard bits and pieces from that. I mean, it's crazy. Some of the shit that he would say, like he his special in 1999, he talked about how airport security was bullshit and how the terrorists are going to find other ways and you're going to have anthrax in, in the air and you're going to have all this stuff in your and water supply. And, you know, and I remember listening to that after 9-11 going like, man, he called all this shit. But if you listen to the actual show that he didn't put out, and he did a kind of a different version of it on complaints and grievances, but he has this whole joke about airplane food, like how all the how, how all the farts build up in the back of the cabin of the plane, you know. <laughs> uh, he's like, and then some little kid turns on a Game Boy, and boom, and the whole plane explodes. He's like, and you know who they blame it on? Osama bin Laden, you know, and like he, just. It, 
the fact that he was always so just right on the pulse was... And then there was that thing with the World Trade Center about two or three years before uh, where some crazies uh, rent a you know, U-Haul truck. Yeah. Kind of like the Oklahoma City bombing full of uh, fertilizer and, and munitions. And multiple people were killed, but it was like not nearly the catastrophe that the 9-11 attacks were. So this stuff was already out there and hanging there and waiting. It wasn't like it took great leaps of imagination to know where it was going to go. And then, of course, we had the uh, Bush, Junior Bush, and um, Paul Wolfowitz, and Dick Cheney, and uh, Schultz, uh, Secretary of State. And they had written this whole thing about um, for the new American century. And on a certain page, like, you know, page 33, they said, we need to get the American people behind us. They have no will for change, you know, social change. We need, what we need is a new Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Maybe they didn't make it happen. But maybe they said, well, you know, these things happen all the time. So we'll just stand down on this one and let it happen. And then go and invade any country that we want to point to. We don't have to invade the country that did it. <laughs> you know, it's like right now, you know, I'm sure Trump is trying to cook up something just so that he can have a, an election with a war in it. Yeah. You know, almost every president does that to get a war going, and then they get reelected. I don't know if you saw the uh, the Dick Cheney movie Vice that they did, but that's that's got some interesting. Um, oh yeah. Stuff in it as yeah. well. What's his name? The Batman plays. Uh, yeah, Christian Bale. Cheney is really shocking. How they they got him to look like him too, even with that smear he always had. And the voice and everything. Uh, yeah, I know. yeah. The guy should have won an award for character acting. Yeah, and those people are still out there too. They're not, you know, they. They're like termites. They never go away. Yeah. When you guys finally did uh, wrap that project and you and you changed the title, did you also change the art that you used? Or No, it was all the art was the same. No, we didn't change a, a line of it. I was only disappointed when I, I saw it in the shop and it was a CD. And I, it was going to be a record, a proper you know, 12-inch record. It would have been three feet by 12 inches, really big because all the things that were happening in the picture got shrunk down so much and reduced in size to a CD, uh, even though it's a CD fold-out. Even I find it hard to see what's in there. But George is a good sport about it. When we went to, uh, I'd never been to Las Vegas, and he, he flew us over to see him, and um, we were at the MGM backstage, and, and he said, so what do, you, what do you think of Las Vegas? I was still in shock because we'd just been walking around. It's like a cross between Alice in Wonderland and Blade Runner. <laughs> he says, yeah, on bad acid. And, and no kidding, it, it really, you know, reminded me of the worst of both worlds. But, you know, he was telling us wonderful stories uh, that had nothing to do with anything because we were just, we got to talking and yakking and yakking until he finally, the lady who was his, uh, Handler, <laughs> George, you gotta go on in about five minutes. You gotta get your your stuff together. And uh, so we went out and watched the show. <laughs> and at one point, my girlfriend said, "Hey, be careful, George. You're you're really a nice guy. You're gonna ruin your own reputation." <laughs> said, no, no, I, I I like people. You know, just one on one. It's it's when they're in crowds, I hate them. Yeah. <laughs> so I know exactly how that feels. Yeah, definitely. 
he was uh, uh, a real gent. And just funnier in hell, too, because he cracked these jokes, and you could tell he, he had really nailed it down. And uh, I'm sure it was an influence on the society in general, just especially individuals who admired his insight. Yeah, I was lucky enough to see him on that tour and a year or two later when he was working up to the following special. And uh, it was great to see him do it in, in person. In, in particular, the, the, yeah. the second time when he was working on newer stuff because then watching the broadcast on HBO later and seeing like there was some stuff that he did differently. Kind of the same reason I appreciate having this bootleg out is that you can get a peek behind the curtain as to I mean because it's yeah, always it's so I've smooth. I've never seen the broadcast. I, I didn't know. I, mean, I saw you know, the show when you did it that night. I saw the show you invited me to like a year later. Biafra and I went to about. I've never I've never seen the HBO one. Oh really? No, I, I guess you I guess you can get that right on Amazon or whatever. Uh yeah, and it's on DVD Netflix. and everything now. Huh. I think Amazon has all of his uh, his videos to stream to. Cool. I'll try to check it out because I remember someone was saying, "Oh yeah, the show they had these great big posters of the of, of your artwork, and they'd gone to it." And I said, "Oh, did you get one?" Said, or should I call them? And I talked to his office, like uh, you know, a few weeks later, and they they told me that there are these big posters that are as big as the real record cover, you know, three feet long, or you know, uh, yeah, three feet long. And uh, the lady said, "Yeah, yeah, they came out really great. They're huge." And I said, "Can I get like you know, two or three for my my archives?" And said, oh no, too bad, dear. We gave them all away. Yeah. <laughs> I've looked for that shit on eBay, oh, man. Damn. It, yeah, they're hard I to find. Possibly, I mean, there've got to be a lot of Carlin freaks out there, you know, fan club people who might have a a copy that they wouldn't mind. Uh, well, I've got the original. Uh, maybe at, at some point we'll resurrect that for future yeah. entertainment. Well, uh, before I let you go, I just wanted to touch on real quick the records that, that we did together for Dead Fucking Serious. Yeah. When I reached out to you for Squalor, I thought, there's no way I'm going to get to work with this fucking guy, but I got to ask. <laughs> and, um, oh, I'm glad you did. No, it, it worked out great. Squalor came out good as a graphic. I, even the unplanned back page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that you sent me the scan of the the reverse, the reverse of the collage. I was like, oh, that's actually kind of perfect. Yeah, yeah. It, it too, by itself, was a. Uh, it's actually the more surrealistic version in that that's what comes out in the subconscious. It's you know what's behind the one that you you consciously intend. Yeah. It's like a one big Freudian slip. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I just remember when um, I first reached out to you about the idea and we were going to base it on your uh, uh, Welcome to Oblivion, or Greetings from Oblivion series. Oh, that's serious, yeah. And, and uh, you know, I, th I thought, it's like, okay, I already had the title. I think that could work with this sort of style. I remember I sent you a demo track for something and, and was like, you know, this album's a lot about grief and depression and anxiety or whatever, and you're like, well, you found the right guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All my favorite things. Yeah. yeah, those pieces might be in a show opening here in San Francisco on the 31st of October. So that's uh, Halloween, actually. Nice. Halloween night. And uh, it's a Thursday. 
uh, at the Hate Street Art Center. And the show will be up for like a month or so. I think we take it down on Pearl Harbor Day. Oh, cool. But it'll be, um, and so they want to do a whole window with those, you know, greetings from oblivion, greetings from heartbreak, greetings from from futility. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we should have the squalor thing in. And I think, you know, the peril composition came out really well for for yeah. your your other record peril is awesome i mean i i liked what squalor did with the one word title and kind of summing up the the general feeling of that record and with this one we had i don't even know how much i told you about we had so many different ideas of like we had just written the song never again because the, the parkland school shooting had just happened in florida yeah. and, and we oh. were we were just like I was to the point that I wanted to use like real photos from a school shooting and put that on the fucking cover and be like, "This is what's going on, you motherfuckers!" Like, yeah. look yeah, at what's no, happening. No you know? way to soft soap any of this. Yeah, and I, and I didn't know how to how to make it real without being like exploiting the victims or something mm-hmm. like that. And and so we were like, "Well, maybe we'll do an artist rendering, you know, and it's like a drawing." Or, "Well, no, maybe we use a photo of, you know, something from news footage." Or maybe we. And so we went through so many different versions, and then we we used what be- became the kind of inner photos for the for the CD where it's like yeah. we staged yeah, the, the, the school shooting aftermath which is probably good because that people fill in their, their imagination they know what happened yeah and seeing it before and after you know I thought the the set designer and photographer did a really good job of that but but when you took this uh, I knew that I wanted the the lettering to be guns like your uh, revamped idol where you put the the guns as the cross for Christ instead of the uh, dollars. And I, I had seen that oh, and yeah. thought, okay, that is the style I want to go with for peril. But just putting it on the backdrop of all those shell casings was, I, I thought, really inspired. And, and it's it's maybe my favorite album cover in, in everything I've ever had. Well, our timing, thanks. I, I, our timing was was good. I mean, that cross made out of what's called humanity hanging on a cross of iron so you have like the christ figure hung on this thing made out of you know shooting irons and six guns and bazookas i mean all these armaments we were going to use it for um ben harper oh and at the last minute there was this horrible shooting in paris the one at a theater yeah yeah and then these guys went out on motorcycles went through the streets of Paris and just shot randomly at anybody they could. It was like 24 people killed and all, and, and it was all Hezbollah or the Mujahideen, uh, in one of the many different groups. And it was kind of like George Ben called up and said, oh, you know, that picture we're thinking of using on the cover of the new record. Mm, maybe we'll, we'll wait till next time. And, yeah. Um, just because, you know, the, I think the record company didn't want to, you know, bring up any heavy imagery in front of a um, population that had been so recently and so severely attacked. As much as I get that, that was yeah. that was the exact reason why I wanted to do it. You know, it's like, yeah. that's that was the reason I felt like we needed to show it. Like, this was one of the first albums where I felt like I had some kind of responsibility to put 
this message out there and i mean you saw the music video too i mean we're we're, we're using the actual footage of these shootings you know, people should know this is like i mean you know when they showed pictures after the war of my mom and dad are young people they were my dad was in the army during the second world war they just figured everything they heard about was just propaganda you know it's always propaganda and there couldn't be anything as horrible as auschwitz and when they showed these pictures they showed newsreels of you know people stacked up bodies piled high and what the nazis are really doing behind everyone's back and you know it was more shocking than anything that they had known when the war was raging yeah and, and the case against horrors has to be horrible to argue against these things you have to be very upfront about what, what it is we're talking about so much of it is in in political language and hypothetical and ideals yeah. and and ideas and i thought that god we need to just boil this back down to what the fuck it is you know yeah and put and it and, in and your and face it's marketing it's marketing on the part of you know remington arms one of the united states largest uh, arms builders in, in winchester and and they market these things like they market on laundry soap yeah like they market candies, it's it's you know sexy, it's fun, it's the psychology is marketing to people who are terrified. Yeah, and you know they're not these strong, brave men; they're terrified, whimpering paranoids. You know, and they're paranoid that everyone's out to get them or take something away from them. Oh yeah, and you know paranoids are the most dangerous of people who have uh, mental conditions because they're the ones who think you're going to get them first, so they better get you first. Yeah. So they, so they, they rationalize it as, as saying, well, I didn't go and attack him. He, he was going to attack me any minute, so I, I'm just defending myself. I mean, Your you, Honor. you get these guys <laughs> that... Trying to say that in front of the judge. <laughs> they're the same people who will say that restricting gun sales is an emotional argument. And, oh, you can't see this thing on the news and get all emotional and react. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, what? They if, are emotional. If, if yeah. it wasn't emotional to you, you wouldn't be afraid someone was going to bang on your exactly. door and shoot you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It has nothing to do with anything but emotions. Like, yeah. Their emotions being manipulated by these marketing franchises. You know, it's like the way they market cigarettes or alcohol yeah. or, or whatever, you know. Like, in reality, you know, has nothing to do with the uh, the fantasy life of um, auto freaks, sports fans, or or gun nuts. This years and years ago, uh, like when we were doing Rock Against Racism, uh, a friend of mine who had been blind since birth, a really good musician, uh, we'd sit around, you know, brainstorm over a forty ounce. He was saying, "Well, you know, I'm I'm an American citizen, and I keep hearing on the radio all these debates about, you know, people." should have guns because they're Americans and, and I'm thinking well yeah you, you should have your own guns <laughs> uh, uh, so we, we, we invented a, a group called Guns for the Blind and it's a, like an AK-47 cross with a white cane <laughs> and, and, and a pair of like sunglasses dark glasses yeah. you know, to represent blindness and, and then like a whole ring of bullets all the way around and and figure you know just because you happen to have this uh, slight a little bit blind kind of <laughs> doesn't mean that you you can't exercise your rights as an American citizen you should fuck it just why can stop at guns let's get bazookas <laughs> you know guns are for wits bazookas if you're really a he-man <laughs> you know you'll get like a Pershing tank you know we were trying to be exaggerated but 
we figured Gun for the Blind would you know never be topped. And then about two years ago, I heard somebody who I think was legally blind or whatever it was. Yeah, I forget. it actually the happened. Guy, the guy was trying to say, you know, since I'm a citizen, I had the right to. And of course, he had you know go through different safety things with someone who's supervising him, which way to point where the target is, <laughs> as if you know, that would ever come up. Uh, There's like nothing you can think of, you know, that would be too goofy that doesn't actually come turn real. Yeah, stranger than fiction, you know. Yeah, stranger than fiction. And- There's the saying that Mark Twain had said, uh, of course truth is stranger than fiction. After all, fiction has to make sense. <laughs> and I mean, and that's one thing that I love about whether it's you or Biafra or Carlin or any of these in just the way of seeing through the bullshit, the propaganda and kind of weaponizing it and using it back on them. You know, I think I think that's that's just what draws me to, to all of you guys work. Good thing we don't have our own television network. <laughs> Need some sugar daddies like uh, what was his name, Roger Ailes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'll see if uh, Rockefeller will leave me anything as well. I don't know. <laughs> he can afford it. I'll you know send off asking for a hundred bucks. <laughs> He'd never even miss it. But uh, these things, because they happen over time, they happen through normalization of, of everything where if this were like 1962 and we had a sudden spike in killings and homicides and accidental deaths from guns in this one country people would be shrieking to have the law changed, bridged, you know modified but since we've had everything throughout the last three four decades people slowly you know, they're like the frogs in the water being slowly boiled. You don't feel the heat getting more intense. You just think, oh, it's comfortable. It's a nice hot tub here. It's the new normal, yeah. <laughs> and then you're cooked, and there's no turning back. Well, on that delightful note, I think yeah, I'm going to let you go. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think I'll uh, I'll let you go and, uh, and, and be with your lady and enjoy your night. But... Um, that, oh, thanks. That yeah, was fun, man. It was happy to meet you guys, and, and uh, let, let us know next time you'll, you're coming to town. And, and let me know next time you, you have a, a project going for a, a new album. Yeah, for See sure. See if we can, we can work, make any more trouble together. Yeah, man, I'd love to. Well, say hi to the lads for me, and uh, tell them thanks again. And and Chick loves the shirt you, you gave her. Oh, good. She, she wears it. That was her... Her birthday gift. Awesome. Awesome. Well, <laughs> no, yeah. I'm yeah. Off the hook. <laughs> yeah, tell her happy birthday for us. I shall. Okay, man. Take care. All right. See you later. All right. That is our show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Winston for being so generous with your time. Uh, he invited us, my band Dead Fucking Serious, to hang out at the studio and check out his work behind the scenes while we were on tour in August. And uh, you can check out his upcoming gallery events at winstonsmith.com. As he mentioned, events starting as early as the 31st of this month. If you like the show, please subscribe to it. I've got all kinds of underground punk rock and hip-hop guests producers, songwriters, you name it. Next guest is Trevor Riley from A Wilhelm Scream. And I may actually have a special 
bonus episode I'm throwing in there as well. I'm going to leave you with a track from the new DFS album, Peril, artwork by Winston Smith. This is a track we mentioned earlier, made in tribute to the Parkland survivors. It's called Never Again. <laughs> 